This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. While you hear do snoring lie, open-eyed conspiracy, his time doth take. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, and it's good to be back in the air chair after two weeks away. What I thought was uh, just a simple case of laryngitis and a really bad cold turned out to be pneumonia, uh, which I, I guess I'm a typical male in that regard. I didn't go to the doctor when I should have, and I let it go on for, uh, well, far too long. And then one night, I I felt I was literally drowning in my own fluids. And uh, so luckily, the mighty Aphrodite stepped in and whisked me to a a nearby medical clinic. Uh, The good doctor listened to my back and chest and asked, do you have asthma? Uh, I said, no. He said, then you have pneumonia. Uh, Anyway, so uh, I finished my antibiotics and I finished with my inhaler. uh, But the voice, uh, it's more or less back to normal. The energy level is definitely not where it should be. Uh, So this is going to be really the first test of my voice. So as an insurance policy, I've asked my good friend and colleague, Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network, to join me in studio in case my voice starts to fail and get a little thin. So, Victor, thank you for being here. Oh, it's wonderful to be here as a backup plan in any case. And we, we are a stubborn lot, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are indeed. And listen, I, again, I know I, I sent you an email immediately after the show, uh, after listening to it, but i got to thank you again for filling in for me last week and uh, in the 11th hour. Uh, and what an interview with Daniel Kaiser on Malaysian Flight 370. Compelling stuff, Victor. Thank you for that. Well, it was a real insight for me, too, and a real journey in, in many, many different ways. I know I took you out of your, your, your comfort zone last week talking about missing planes and pyramids in Bosnia, uh, and you did yeoman's duty. And I'm going to uh, press you into duty again tonight on another topic, not necessarily in your wheelhouse, and that would be UN Agenda 21. Uh, about a month ago, I had Dr. Timothy Ball, noted skeptic of anthropogenic global warming, on uh, to discuss his new book, The Corruption of Climate Science. And at that time, I mentioned uh, to Tim that I wanted to put together a radio program on 
UN Agenda 21, and he jumped at the chance to participate uh, because he suspects, as I do, and a growing chorus of people do from all walks of life and political stripes, that the United Nations blueprint for the 21st century, which was adopted at the Earth Summit in Rio back in 1992, is not just some innocuous, uh, uh, about some innocuous sounding terms like uh, sustainable development and smart growth and social justice, which all sound like wonderful terms, hard to agree or disagree with them on the surface. But underneath that, underneath that, there are many who are beginning to suspect that UN Agenda 21 is really a blueprint for authoritarian one-world government and that the social engineers at the UN are using the perceived threat of environmental catastrophe, things like global warming, to coerce governments around the world into adapting, adopting rather, UN Agenda 21. So what is it? What is Agenda 21? Essentially, as I see it, the UN wants to inventory every resource on the planet, every human activity. So think about it. They want to inventory and control all land, all water, all minerals, all plants, all animals, all construction, all means of production, all energy, all education, all information, all human beings in the world. That's Agenda 21, all in the name of sustainable development. And it's an incremental plan, as I see it, to strip North Americans in particular. They don't like the middle class. They don't like the North American lifestyle. They don't like the ideas of private property and private automobiles. This could be the end of private property. The end of pro I'm not. I don't think I'm exaggerating. We're all going to be herded into uh, urban centers, stacked housing. High-density living, that's the smart growth that your city council and regional government is talking about. People will be chased off family farms. This is, in many ways, a war against rural people. They're going to be chased off family farms out of the countryside into cities where we can all be controlled and surveilled. Am I overstating the case? Well, let's find out. Let's welcome back to the program Dr. Timothy Ball, a renowned environmental consultant, former professor of climatology, at the University of Winnipeg, served on many local and national committees and as chair of provincial boards on water management, environmental issues, and sustainable development. There's that word again. He's got an extensive scientific background in climatology, especially in the reconstruction of past climates and the impact of climate change on human history. And his latest book is The Corruption of Climate Science. Tim, how are you? I'm fine, um, and glad to see you back, and hope you can uh, hang together. But uh, we'll, I'll help you out um, as much as I can. I appreciate it, and uh, I've also got my good friend and colleague, Victor Vigiani, uh, in studio as well. Say hello to Victor. How are you, Victor? Yeah, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll pull off a good program here. Incidentally, um, I'd never mentioned it before, but I was born on November 5th. The significance of that, and whether, you know, the... Uh, whether we're into astrology and the influence of the stars and so on. But anyway, I, November 5th is in England is known as Guy Fawkes Day. Ah, yes. Right? And Guy Fawkes, of course, uh, conspiracy theorist par excellence. Yes. Um, I prefer the comment that uh, somebody said he's the only person that ever went to Parliament 
with good intention. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, <laughs> right. indeed. Uh, but have um, I overstated? Have no, I overstated no, the concerns no. about you and Agenda Twenty One? No, and and you know what I wrote down as you were talking about all the data collection, um, the Doomsday Book. You know, when William the Conqueror invaded Britain, uh, the first thing he ordered was a complete inventory of everything in Britain, who owned the land, how many cows they had. And, and of course, that's what you do if you're planning to take control. And, um, and so the uh, the whole idea of Agenda 21 and data collection, information is power. And and uh, so if, if that's your primary objective, you're telling people what you're intending to do, and, and uh, you're not, not overstating it at all. It, in fact, I would say that you're understating it. And, and, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, so much of it is already going on. Um, when, when you look at uh, law of the sea, control of the oceans, um, uh, national boundaries, and so on and so forth, um, it, it, so much of it is underway. And, of course, it transcends national governments. And, and uh, so that, that it goes on without many governments being aware of, of, of what they're doing. It's like when, when you join any you join anything, even in a marriage, you you automatically surrender something, but you make a decision as to whether what you gain by being part of it outweighs the what you lose. But you always lose something, and um, we're we're seeing that now. It's it's breaking down with the uh, Russian invasion of of the Ukraine, and uh, of course the parallels were made with. Putin going into uh, Crimea with Hitler going into the Sudetenland in, in, uh, prior to the first, Second World War. And, um, and we could talk about that, by the way, about how they always find academic justification uh, for what they're doing. But um, that, that, uh, that whole uh, uh, problem that developed out of Hitler going into the Sudetenland was because of all the treaties that had, that these countries had, had committed themselves to. I mean, Britain got drawn into it because they had a treaty with France that said, if France is, is invaded, then we will support France, not knowing that France had a treaty with Poland that said, if Poland's invaded, France is committed. And, and to give you an idea about these, uh, these commitments and how you get gradually drawn in by these treaties, one of the ways that Lenin got the Russian army, which was essentially the middle class, which of course was critical to his revolution, well, the way he got the army to stop fighting in the First World War, remember the revolution occurred in 1917, right, right. was he, he simply said, look, I've got access to all all of the treaties, and he exposed them. And he said, "Look, you're you're fighting, you're you're dying for nothing because the the uh, who gets what after the war has already been agreed on." There you go. Uh, I mean, I, I would um, not that we're necessarily talking about uh, Putin, but I, I mean, I, no, I, no. I, have, I have an entirely different take on what's happening there. That's another show. Uh, yeah, but, uh, of course. But but as I said, my 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 point was that that the public. And many times governments have no idea right. of what previous governments have committed them to. And, of course, those that are looking to, 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 for total global power are aware of that. Right. Well, let, let's, let's dial back to 1992 and the Earth yep. Summit, which, again, on the surface sounds like a wonderful thing. We all want to be good stewards of the Earth. Uh, and this is when 
this blueprint for the 21st century, which is where Agenda 21 gets its name, the blueprint for the 21st century, uh, we had about 178, 180 signatures uh, to this uh, agreement. But the UN says, but it's all voluntary. It's all voluntary. How do you respond to that? Well, I mean, it's voluntary in the sense of if you're being misled and misguided and, and duped, uh, and, and, of course, one of the giveaways is the production of, of, of phrases and terminologies like sustainable development. It, it, it's, it's, I've always said it's a term that means everything to everyone and nothing to anyone. Right. And but... the reason I became aware of that, and, and by the way, think about this, um, the, the way that you marginalize people. So, and I think we talked about this last time, Richard, is, is that you say, okay, if you dare to ask questions about Obama, oh, you're a birther. Right. So, so simply by being labeled by that, these groups then can isolate you as some kind of a fringe that, that well, the majority don't listen to that guy. And they did it with global warming skeptics and, and, and uh, climate change deniers and all these other things. And, and so these marginalizings that go on are a giveaway. Sustainable development, all these terms, were deliberately created to, uh, as part of the PR for um, the uh, Agenda 21, um, it was a term that came out of a report done by Gro Harlem Brundtland, who was a, um, a, a socialist uh, prime minister of Norway. Um, and the reason I realized that the term was meaningless was because I was asked to write uh, an article about sustainable agriculture. And I, and I realized sustainable agriculture made sense. Sure. That you, you want an agriculture that's not going to exploit the soils too much, not going to deplete resources, blah, blah, blah. Then I looked at sustainable development again and said, why doesn't it work? And the answer is because it's two nouns. Ah, two nouns. Interesting. Right. It, 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 it's it's gra- grammatically rubbish. <laughs> here's the way it works. Listen, it, I'll, it, I'll get you to explain how it works, uh, Tim. Yeah, we'll okay. take a time out, come back. We're talking about UN Agenda 21, Victor Vigiani, in studio from... Zealand uh, News Network and on the line, uh, Tim Ball, Dr. Timothy Ball, the author of The Corruption of Climate Science. UN Agenda 21, is it merely an innocuous a blueprint for the 21st century for sustainable development or is it a blueprint for authoritarian one world government? We'll discuss on the other side. The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. All right, so here's the idea. In the name of sustainable development, in the name of social justice, whatever that means. Hard to disagree with social justice, but what does it mean? So in the name of smart growth and social justice and and uh, sustainable development, they want to chase everybody into, herd like cattle, everybody into these urban centers. We'll be basically living in stacked housing, high-rises, no more cars. You'll be on mass transit. Uh, you'll be told where to work, what to eat, you may not even have need of an appliance. I think, I, I, you know, I think they'd love to get rid of our appliances, our microwaves and our washers and our dryers and our stoves. You know, am I overstating it? I don't think so. Now, what are they going to do with the rest of the land? They're going to have these large urban centers, maybe 10, 12 million people. Surrounding this are going to be these massive wilderness corridors where no humans are allowed to go because humans bad, right? We're like a cancer. We're destroying Gaia the earth. So you've got these wilderness corridors. They're going to be rewilded. They're going to reintroduce wolves and bisons and all of these things, except 
we can't go there, but who can? I'm guessing the elites, right? It'll be like a return to the, the feudal age where the lords and the vassals get to hunt. And uh, we serfs basically get herded into these slums. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network. I'll give Victor a chance to jump in here, and I'll rest my voice a little bit. Tim Ball, uh, the author of The Corruption of Climate Science, is with us as well. Now, you were making a very interesting note about the term sustainable development. It's two nouns. Grammatically, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, and the proof of that, by the way, is, is you can make some sense out of it and, and something that could form the basis of reasonable policy, and that is if you simply say we need to develop a sustainable society. And so you make a sentence out of it instead of a glib uh, political catchphrase. And, and of course, that th- th- these are signs of control. But um, just what that you just mentioned the idea about um, uh, control, and I, I want to read a quote for you because if the phrase comes up in uh, later on in the uh, Club of Rome, which of course, as I'll, I'll explain to you, is the foundation of the ideas at, that uh, have become Agenda 21. But, but you mentioned about uh, hurting the people. Uh, and, and by the way, one, one uh, area that is of particular um, hatred, uh, Obama, for example, uh, anti uh, the suburbs. The suburbs represent everything that these people despise. And, and of course, as you're talking about, about having everybody in these high-rises, and then immediately outside of that are these vast areas uh, the suburbs are the real difference in, in advancement of society, because that's where you have your individual home and your individual freedoms and so on. But anyway, back to the, 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 the underlying theme is that humans, there are too many of them, particularly too many to be controlled, so you need to reduce the numbers because they are, they are putting too much pressure on the resources of the planet, and that it's much easier to control people uh, in smaller numbers. And uh, if you can determine who gets born and who doesn't, then you have the ultimate control. Now, if you want to see some hints of that in the 20th century, uh, look at China with its uh, one-child-per-family situation to uh, claiming that they had to reduce the population. What a lot of people don't know is that China, you were allowed to have a second child, but that child did not exist as far as the state was concerned. That if you wanted to have that second child and you could afford to pay for it, then go ahead. But as far as the state was concerned, they that, that child did not exist. They were persona non grata. Interesting. And, and of course, this, this, is a, this is all about the ultimate in control. And... But here's the quote that I wanted to read you, and it's from um, uh, Ingrid Newkirk, who was um, one of the leaders of the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And and, um, this is another whole part of this this idea about um, whether we're we're animals or not, or whether we can be herded like animals, uh, as these people seem to think. Uh, But Ingrid Newkirk said, mankind is a cancer. Mm. Now, that's a phrase that you've already read, I know, in, in the Club of Rome documents, the 1994 uh, Club of Rome treatise on, on Agenda 21. Mankind is a cancer. We're the biggest blight on the face of the earth. 
if you haven't given voluntary human extinction much thought before, the idea of a world with no people in it may seem strange. But if you give it a chance, I think you might agree that the extinction of Homo sapiens would mean survival for millions, if not billions, of Earth-dwelling species. My God. Phasing out the human race will solve every problem on Earth, social and environmental. Okay? And, and you, you get this bizarre, I mean, that's an extreme example, obviously, but, but between that and reducing the numbers, which is what Agenda 21 is all about, then you get to Suzuki who is very much a part of this whole idea. And he, he said economics is a very species chauvinistic idea. No other species on Earth, and there may be 30 million of them, has had the nerve to put forth a concept called economics, in which one species, us, declares the right to put value on everything else on Earth in the living and non-living world. So we well, are on the same par as, a, as an armadillo, a yep. sewer rat. Yep. Uh, Yep, and therefore we, we, we deserve to be controlled. But of course, what's wrong with Suzuki's comment is that other animals do put a value on everything. It's either food or it isn't. And it doesn't get any more basic than that. Right, right. Right, and, and of course, control of world food production um, is, is another huge part of, of the Agenda 21. Um, but the, the, uh, the other thing is, of course, that um, he's wrong about the 30 million uh, species. There's actually many more th- than that. Um, but but it, it doesn't matter. Facts don't matter. It, it, the end justifies the means. And, and so the Club of Rome... Um, is really central to understanding Agenda 21. Uh, it grew out in the 60s. It grew out, and by the way, it's still the people that are driving it, it the intellectuals, the academics still driving it, uh, are at work today. And I mean that deliberately because just just a couple of days ago, we got the IPCC came out with a report saying that it's far worse than we thought. That report of 2,000 pages was written by uh, professors at Stanford University, which was where all of these ideas about overpopulation in the Club of Rome originated back in, in, the, uh, in the 1960s and 70s. Wasn't that the limits to growth? Limits to growth, exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, just to give you an idea of, of the thinking behind these people, uh, Stephen Schneider, who was very, very much a part of... of not just the uh, uh, Agenda 21, but also the whole um, climate issue. Um, in, in Discover magazine in 1989, um, he made this comment. He said, um, um, like most people, we would, we'd like to see the world a better place, which in this context translates into our working to reduce the risk of potentially disastrous climate change. To do that, we have to get some broad-based support to capture the public's imagination. That, of course, entails getting loads of media coverage. So we have to offer up scary scenarios, make simplified, dramatic statements, and make little mention of any doubts we might have. Each of us has to decide what the right balance is between being effective and being honest. Now, if that last statement doesn't scare the hell out of everybody, I don't know what will. Well, it all has to do with, with, with language, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. when you take a look at the whole language of mendacity, and my background is in, in uh, linguistics, yeah. and it, it, I'll just give you an example. If you were to remove 
all of the, the vocabulary or all of the language around, say, the word or the concept of botany, there would be no botany. We'd, be, we'd have no way of conceptualizing it. So what we have now in, 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 in the current situation, you have the words health care, which really means the elimination of the lower class. What you have is income tax. It's, it's a way of robbing the middle class. And what you have now is a mission, the mission statement by Monsanto, which really gives permission to eradicate a specific segment of society. And GMOs translated basically a formula for genetic modification of, of human beings. So th- that whole idea of linguistics, and I think you're pointing out really, really well, if you control the language, you control yep. I- ideology. And I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, I- exactly. And then if you, can, if you as a leader um, are not necessarily into linguistics or to theory, you can, if you can go and find an academic that would provide academic and intellectual justification for what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, I deliberately introduced uh, Hitler going into the Sudetenland, and um, because Hitler, um, even though, yeah, he was a ruthless dictator, um, these people are still, they still want to look good in the, in the face of the world. So they want to be able to say, well, look, I'm just doing what the academics say is perfectly justifiable. Now, there was a German geographer, and this starts in, in the 1890s, by the name of Friedrich Ratzel. And Ratzel um, said that uh, nations are organisms just like cells, and they're just like a creature. And, um, and this, of course, is, is adapting Darwinism. It's social Darwinism is really what it is. And, and Ratzel said that each nation has the uh, natural authority to expand at the expense of the weaker nations around it. Lebensraum. Lebensraum, exactly. There's that term. And Lebensraum is the word that Ratzel produced in his work. That's where it came from. Mm. Now, there was another academic by the name of Yellen, K-J-E-L-L-E-N, and he said, yeah, not only is the, uh, have these stronger states um, the natural right to expand at the, extent of the, uh, at the expense of the weaker ones, but they have the right to use force to do it. So, of course, now Hitler's got all of the academic justification that he needs for what he is doing. And, and so, of course, if you are, are um, uh, somebody like Amari Strong, who's looking to take power, who's got a, a, a totally socialist and, and a, a view of the world where you think government should be running everything, then if you can find academics that are going to ju- provide that for you, and that's exactly what he found in these academics at Stanford University. Well, you, and you, by the, yeah. Sorry, you mentioned, you mentioned yeah. uh, Hitler, and, and then yeah. we were talking about the UN, and people are, might be saying, well, wait a minute, how could you compare one to the other? But at, at, at the core... You know, National Socialism, they were collectivists. They were Malthusians. The good yep. of the group outweighs the good of the individual. Exactly. And, and to me, that is the greatest threat facing humanity today yep. is the collectivist mindset where they've created this fiction called the group. There is right. no such thing as a group. A group is made up of individuals. It's right. like, you know, you, you can't hug a forest, which is a group of trees, but you can hug a tree. Yep. So these... People and this philosophy now is is becoming part of the core curriculum in schools. They are brainwashing our children. Yep. 
Uh, there was a, a recently in the United States. There was an exercise. A woman found her grade three, uh, uh, her child in grade three, brought home this assignment where she was told, pick two uh, amendments in the Bill of Rights that we don't need and get rid of them, and then add two new ones. Can you imagine? How do you decide which civil liberties we don't need anymore? This is what's going on in the educational system, the move yep. towards collectivism. This scares me to no end. Well, of course, if you look at, uh, uh, at the Catholic Church, they created the, the Jesuits under Ignatius Loyola, and he was one of the first people to say, give me the child and I'll give you the adult. And, of course, that was uh, uh, adopted into Hitler Youth, that, that same concept, that uh, if you can grab the child and, and uh, baptize them. But, by the way, but beyond all of that, I was on a program the other day, and, and somebody phoned in and said, you know, the U.S. is the last uh, chance for uh, freedom of speech and freedom of the individual. And I said, no, they're the first chance. They're the only country in the history of the world that ever took as the basis of its foundation the, the rights of the individual above the collectivism. Right. And, and not only that, but they were the first country in the world to recognize the right to uh, private ownership of land. Now, people will say, oh, well, there was private ownership of land in medieval England and Europe and so on. Yes, but it was not by the individual. It was by very, very powerful people. And, and uh, everybody, uh, the majority of the people were simply tenant farmers, essentially slaves in that medieval exactly. system. Listen, I've got to take another time out, uh, yes, uh, Dr. Thanks. Ball. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Tim Ball, the corruption of climate science, but this time around... We're discussing UN Agenda 21, using the perceived threat of environmental catastrophe to usher in one world governments. Back with more. Stay with us. Welcome back to the program. We're talking about the United Nations Agenda 21 and what it all means. Is it a blueprint for wonderful terms like social justice and, and, and smart growth and sustainable development? Or is it, in fact, all about inventory and control? and the end of things like private property. Uh, Tim Ball is with us, the author of The Corruption of Climate Science, and uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, Tim, about how this is being implemented, because uh, while the UN says it's, it's voluntary, what is really driving this, from what I understand, is a group that formed in Germany prior to the Earth Summit, and it's called the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, otherwise known as ICLE. Tell me about their role and how this Agenda 21 is being implemented at the local, regional levels. Well, of course, one, one of the things that, uh, before it got to that, uh, that group, um, it, the, the idea was spawned, in in uh, in America, um, as I said, through the well, the Club of Rome, but the Club of Rome itself, obviously with the name Rome, was triggered by a few industrialists, and it it's a very interesting thing in history. I mean, you, you see it with Bill Gates; they make a lot of money, and it's almost as if they feel guilty about making money, and they have to go and save the planet. And as H.L. Mencken said several years ago, the urge to save the planet is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. Mm. And, and um, so uh, the, the Club of Rome starts with a group of industrialists. It then gets picked up in, at Stanford 
Um, and the Club of Rome took uh, Malthus's idea, the Malthusian idea, that people were uh, going to outgrow their food supply. And, and Malthus actually, um, although he was a minister of the church, I'm not sure how Christian he was, because he was arguing that the things like poor laws and, and, and help for the, the, the poorer people and, and food banks and so on were, were, uh, were huge problems because they were encouraging people that shouldn't be born to be born. Because one of, one of the things when you start talking about population control, you, it's not only numbers. It's also the quality, of, as you define it, of the people that you want to keep alive. And that, of course, uh, it, it evolved into eugenics, uh, which you saw with, with Hitler and, and all, all the rest of it, but it was very prominent throughout the world. Well, yes, he got his the racial hygiene laws were based on the, the, uh, the eugenicist movement in the United States. Oh, exactly. The people, you know, the, the den mother of uh, Planned Parenthood and all of these groups uh, yeah. that were involved in eugenics. And even our own, uh, God for friend, I, you know, but he yeah. was voted the greatest Canadian, but Tommy Douglas was yeah. into eugenics. And oh, yeah. there's a paper sitting at the University of Toronto talking about, you know, sterilizing the handicapped and so forth. These were his ideas. But what it, what's the common theme of that? The common theme of that is that they are um, essentially uh, socialists. They're left wing. They believe in the total government or larger government control, and, and some of them total government control. The good of the so many outweighs the good of the the few or the individual. Well, yes, of course. But one of the things that's happened in today's society, as we're seeing it, is that uh, yeah, we had the tyranny of the majority, but what have we placed it with? With the tyranny of the minority. And, and uh, that, that's what political correctness is all about. And it's like I've always said, you know, that the tail has always wagged the dog. But what you've got going on now is a flea on the hair on the tail is wagging the dog uh, because of this argument um, about uh, stopping tyranny. But the Club of Rome um, formulated around Malthus's idea. And by the way, Richard, it's very interesting um, uh, Darwin took Malthus's essay on population with him on the Beagle, mm. and he agreed with uh, Malthus that um, you know population or people shouldn't be born that that are are not fit. That the whole concept is purely um, animals and not human. The survival of the fittest, and and Darwin believed in that. And, and, of course, one of the challenges to Darwin, and, and, and uh, let me step aside here for a second, by choosing Darwin as their champion to defeat religion, science or blocked any challenge or question to Darwin's theory. It doesn't work, it doesn't fit the reality, but nobody, no scientist would dare to say that because they have this fear of, oh, the creationists are going to come leaping out of the, the closet. It became the new them. religion. Exactly. Let me take a time out. Uh, Dr. Tim Ball with us, Victor Vigiani in studio, UN Agenda 21. Something nefarious this way comes. All right. Uh, welcome back. I, I want to uh, get Victor Vigiani to jump in here with a question, uh, uh, but I, I did want to just bring you back to the sort of the foot soldiers in this that are 
uh, informing a lot of the, the local uh, city councils and rewriting zoning laws in a very undemocratic process and, and how land is to be used and so forth. And again, it's this International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives. Can you just give us a sense of how this works and how the agenda is being implemented? And then Victor will jump in here. Implemented because they're turning um, the, the structure of society upside down. Um, probably the easiest way for people to understand this is that um, if we do it on an income tax basis, and you mentioned about that, a tax on the middle class and so on. But originally, uh, with the U.S. and, and Canada or Britain, whatever, uh, if you were to write a check for your uh, federal tax uh, net today, it's about 34% of your income. And provincial is about 18 or 19%, and the same with the states. And municipal is about 9%. But who provides for you most on a daily basis? And the answer is municipal. But that was the original uh, pyramid, uh, was that the federal was about 6 six to 9%. Uh, the uh, uh, provincial or, or state was about 18 and municipal was about 34%. So what we've seen in the tax structure and in the legal structure is a complete turning upside down of society uh, so that um, that the, the federal government are overriding everything. They're using the environmental uh, as, as a uh, reason for doing that. And, and of course, by, by taking that, that federal control, they, they tended to lose the conduit, the access down to the municipal level. So the group uh, that, that you identified there is, is set up to overcome that. To, to give control right back down to the municipal level again, but without giving the power to that level. And uh, we've seen these struggles going on uh, around the world. I mean, you see, you see what's going on. The Founding Fathers in the U.S. understood that. States' rights. And, and they, they, they believe that that was the, the, the largest or the highest level that you should go to, that, that uh, Washington should be uh, deliberately controlled and restricted. Yeah, mint the money, provide for the common defense, and build some roads and some bridges. Yeah, Exactly. Uh, but but you see in every in every country in the world, exactly the opposite is happening, and it's 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 two things. It's one, it's by design, but it's also unfortunately by the way that things grow. Right. That, that if you give people power, um, or when you think about it, you create you've got a problem, you create a government department to to solve it. That government department then uh, sets about not solving the problem, but perpetuating the problem in order to perpetuate itself. It becomes a synthetic beast. So let me get exactly. Victor, Victor Vigiani in here. I just want to throw in a, another idea here, yeah. um, and maybe just, just for the sake of our listeners, too. It, it, it seems to me that you know, we're in a process here of uh, you know, we're talking to several thousand people that are listening right now. Um, how do you make aware or, or convince people, A, that this is really going on, and, and then B, uh, that, that we are either powerless or powerful to change it, and then if any change is attempted by the people that are being uh, – this is being foisted upon, that change activity or that action is branded as, as, as anarchy. And it just seems to be a situation where this is a no-win situation for the people that are going to be uh, displaced by all of this. Yeah, well, of course, one of the, the ways we've already discussed is, is in this use of terminology, like the birthers or, or isolating anybody that dares to, to challenge or to question. 
and and um, you know, to be brutally honest, I mean, Hitler was said leaders are lucky that most people don't think. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's 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 so cynical and sadly true, and and um, so what you what you end up with, uh, Richard, is really two choices, and you see this throughout history. You either have changed by uh, evolution or revolution, and and. The sad part is that uh, all my study of civilizations in history is that people just simply say, well, well, I'll give you an example of it. I took seniors on tours of Europe, and we used to go to Pompeii. And one of the tours of Pompeii that I did was just looking at the graffiti there. And they were having an election just prior to the eruption. And one of the pieces of graffiti says, if we get rid of this bunch of scoundrels, we just get another bunch of scoundrels. How timely! <laughs> uh, yeah. And now, now what what you what you see throughout history, and and I've studied it from you know uh, Toynbee's studies on civilization and Will and Ariel Durant and so on. But the only time that the that the the mass of the public will get rid of leaders is one if there is uh, starvation, if the food supply fails. And 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 uh, I'll give you an example of that. Just recently, they were going on about oh, in Egypt there was a, you know Arab Spring, and the, the people in Egypt were rioting against Mubarak and, and all the rest of it. The reality was the food prices had gone through the roof. Those were food riots. They were not political democratic riots. Those are countries that have haven't even a shred of concept of democracy at any level, and and and, and have never had. And so uh, th- this idea, the other way, the other reason that people will rise up against leadership, I suppose, is the, uh, the ultimate control. And that is, if the leaders demonstrate that they think they're there um, because they're so good or because of some other f- authority, that is, they forget that they are only leaders because the people choose to let them be leaders or deign to leave them in place, um, and, and the minute that the leader shows the, that they're not aware of that, then they'll get rid of them. Now, the classic examples, of course, are Charles I, who said, no, I'm, I'm here by divine right. I'm not here at, at the will of the people. So they chopped his head off. And then, and then uh, of course, Louis XVI said, I am the state. Let's have say moi. And, and there's that use of terminology again and phrase, phraseology. Well, they chopped his head off. And and so when when you see uh, and of course this is starting to show with Obama, where he's he's bypassing the Congress, and the Congress are, are are being weak by not asserting their authority as given to them by the founding fathers, who by the way understood all of these things in startling clarity. That's what's amazing about about the founding fathers, um, and 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 so. Uh, those are the only two ways that people will get rid of of uh, bad government. The, the and, tree and, of liberty must be occasionally watered with the blood of tyrants. Exactly. Exactly. Is that what it's going to take to overturn uh, Agenda 21, is revolution? Well, uh, hopefully, uh, that, that's been the history. That, that has been the history. And, and of course, as Santayana said, those that are, or don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Um, but of course, Santayana also said that um, historians are greater than God because they can change history, and he can't. And Twain but, said, "History doesn't repeat, but occasionally there's an echo." But, uh, yeah, well, that's right. But I think that the next 
phase in the development of the United States, which, as I, as I mentioned earlier, is a truly unique uh, experiment in social and political uh, power uh, in the history of mankind. Um, that uh, the next phase is for them to find a, uh, a political, without bloodshed way, of reasserting the right of the individual. But it, the problem they have is it's not only under threat from within, it's under threat from without, and of course that's what Agenda 21 is all about. Right. Let me get Victor in here again, please. No, I, I'm just wondering that uh, in some circumstances uh, in history, it's been pretty well a rule of thumb that 6%, you mentioned ways that things change, 6% unemployment uh, was, was, uh, was gave people permission to riot. Now, when you get... Like double that right now in any of the the modern industrial countries. Uh, why have people not risen to the occasion to say, "Listen, you're you're slowly boiling us in, in a cauldron of of water, and we're not really paying attention to the, to the heat of the water," and they just completely accept the situation that they're in. What is what, what's going on? Well, of course, the the, the 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 difficulty is they're not aware they're in boiling water. And I'll read you a quote, and it, 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 was, it was attributed to Lord Macaulay in 1857, but it, it actually wasn't him, uh, but that, that, it doesn't matter who the source is. But the quote says, A democracy cannot survive as a permanent form of government. It can last only until its citizens discover that they can vote themselves largesse from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority who vote will vote for the candidates promising the greatest benefits from the public purse, with the result that a democracy will always collapse from loose fiscal policies, always followed with a dictatorship. Especially now if you can just run the printing press and you don't have to let tax people uh, to pay for these programs, which is a wonderful thing for, for the politicians. Oh, oh, exactly. But they're not even running printing presses. It's, it's all done electronically Right, now. the electronic version. I, mean, I, I love that story that I heard a, a few years ago about a, a guy that worked for a very uh, large bank, large in the sense of the volumes of money that it was, it was transferring internationally. And, um, but they were doing it in like it was, you know, $3.445 billion instead of, of, of you know, precise amount. So he went to his boss and said, well, at what point do I cut off the decimal point? Right? <laughs> and they said, well, you can go six decimal points. And he said, okay, fine. So then anything beyond six decimal points he put into his own account. <laughs> too big to jail. That's too big what they to call. jail and too big to fail. And, 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 and of course, that, that's part of it, that people get caught up in these things. And, and um, I mean, if, if you look at the fact that, that, that here in, in supposedly the free speech and, and in the U.S., why on earth do you need whistleblower laws? Why do you need to protect people that are going to speak out and say, hey, this company is doing this wrong or this government's doing that wrong? If you have free speech, you either have it or you don't. And clearly, if you've got to pass whistleblower laws, you don't have it. Uh, precisely, precisely. Just back to uh, to UN uh, Agenda Twenty One here for a moment. Yeah. And uh, uh, I mean, it goes by many different names, uh, you know, from city to city. And it's interesting, yeah. even if you know you go to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, right. they've got a similar plan, but it goes by a different name. It's, but it's the same plan as Calgary has, and it goes by a different name. It might be, you know, uh, Future Calgary or something. They give them these clever names. Um, 
How can people be sort of on the guard, uh, on the lookout for this, to know whether it's happening in their regional government or their local their local government? Well, the first thing you do is is that you recognize that anything any government tells you comes with an agenda, and 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 it's that simple. You you just simply don't trust anything government tells you, um, and 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 view it cynically. Um, because because you know it, it it has an agenda. Now, as you investigate it, of course, you can then determine um, is is the agenda uh, reasonably acceptable. It's like my comment earlier: when you enter into marriage or any relationship, you you say, well, you know, are there some good things in? Now, that's exploited, of course, by the term the greater good. Mm. Well, who defines that? Exactly. Right. It it it's like um, uh, uh, well. Uh, there was another quote I had here, um, but they talk about, well, in, in the Principle 15, which is one of the principles of Agenda 21, and they've built into it, of course, they, they say, oh, they have these nice flowery things at the beginning, but then you've got to build in uh, uh, words that allow you to get off the hook. All right, so Principle 15 is one that everybody's familiar with, but have never really understood. A standard approach of environmentalists is the precautionary principle, right? Now, this is the argument, and I first ran into it in, in a public forum. I got about 20 seconds here, Tim. Oh, okay. Uh, Shall we? Well, I ran into it in Ottawa, and we'll talk about it, what it means, because it's very critical to what we're talking about. Well, we, we will. We'll have to do it uh, next time. Oh, uh, we're okay. going to wrap things up here, but we'll do a part two on Agenda 21. It's that important. Tim, thank you so much for your time. Oh, you're very welcome. The corruption of climate science. UN Agenda 21. Victor Vigiani, thank you. It's been a pleasure. The website, richardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. Hello, friends. Yes, I'm back. Good to be here. And after a bout of pneumonia, it's good to be anywhere, quite frankly. My wish for you, as always, is that you are safe, you are warm, and well-fed. Now, I'm not 100%. Uh, Some of you are probably thinking, well, I've thought about that for many years. Richard Serrett is not 100% (laughs) granted, uh, but I'm not. I'm not referring to uh, the uh, my mental state. uh, Actually, I'm just uh, my 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 energy level is not quite there, and my voice is uh, still a little on the thin side. Uh, So tonight, for the next hour, I'll be um, aided and abetted by my colleague Victor Vigiani, the executive director of Zealand News Network, and he's uh, here, sort of as my insurance policy, should my voice fail. Uh, However. Victor is uh, always uh, in studio whenever we uh, delve into topics revolving around the UFO t- uh, UFO ET issue. And uh, Victor, once again, thank you for being here. How are it's, you, my it's friend? Just fine. It's always a pleasure to be here, and it's good to come in the big chair. We're going to chat with uh, our guest Gary Hesseltine, a former British uh, police officer, uh, about uh, the police and UFO sightings in just a minute. But first, uh, I couldn't ignore... I couldn't let the uh, the evening pass without uh, drawing to uh, the listeners' attention um, former President Bill Clinton's recent appearance, Jimmy Kimmel Show on uh, on uh, ABC, and uh, actually commend uh, Kimmel for asking Clinton about this very issue. Tim, can we play this clip? If I was president, and I won't be, let's be honest. <laughs> The first thing I would do after putting my hand on on that Bible and taking that oath 
to serve the country is I, would, I wouldn't even probably finish the oath. I would run to the White House. I'd demand to see all the classified files on the UFOs. <laughs> Because I want to know. I'd want to know what has been going on. Did you do that? Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, some... T- I think it was at the beginning of my second term, we had the anniversary of Roswell. You waited that long? I did. Wow. Well, well I didn't. And then I... There's also Area 51. You remember there was a great sci-fi movie where there was an alien kept deep under the ground yeah. in Area 51? So first I had people go look at the records on Area 51 to make sure there was no alien down there. (laughs) And people thought that because everybody who works there has to stop about an hour away and put on special clothing and then drive in and out. And that's because a lot of our stealth technology is made there. We know that now. And, and, but there are no aliens there. So then I, when the Roswell thing came up, I knew we'd get, you know, zillions of letters. So I had all the Roswell papers reviewed, everything. If you saw that there were aliens there, would you tell us? Yeah. You would. <laughs> I would. I would. All right, there you go. Uh, Bill Clinton, sort of, and you can hear the chortles from the audience and ha, 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 guffaw, guffaw. But the other uh, clip that we didn't get to, uh, Victor, was mm-hmm. when Jimmy Kimmel was asking former President Clinton, right. about something we've discussed on this show with, uh, with, uh, with people like Stephen Bassett and uh, um, uh, Grant, uh, Grant, Cameron. Grant Cameron, from mm-hmm. uh, is uh, the, the Rockefeller Initiative. Right. The idea that Lawrence Rockefeller, sort of the black sheep of the Rockefeller family, was trying to press Bill and Hillary Clinton to disclose... And this was kept secret. And, of course, Grant Cameron's been on uh, talking about this. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the debunkers were saying, that's what a bunch of nonsense. And Stephen Bassett, told, what a bunch of nonsense. No such thing as a Rockefeller initiative. For the first time, President Clinton has actually acknowledged that that is real. Your thoughts? This is a massive step forward. And I just, uh, you know, I played a little bit of it this afternoon um, before the show uh, just to listen. And it is, believe it or not, despite the guffaws and laughter in the background on the K- Jimmy Kimmel show, um, this is a very, very serious matter. With When the president or former president of the United States acknowledges that uh, Lawrence Rockefeller engaged him with uh, a series of letters, actually the total number of letters was about 53, not, not just from Rockefeller himself, but in the full exchange uh, between uh, Jack Gibbons and a number of other people in the White House and the Office of Science and Technology, 53 separate letters, including ones from Carl Sagan and other dignitaries. Uh, Billy Graham was one of them. Uh, exhorting the president to relieve the uh, the truth embargo, to stop the secrecy. It's time, in one of his, uh, the letters that, uh, that Rockefeller wrote, Mr. President, it's time for us to end the secrecy. You know that we are, we, are, we are keeping secrets about the UFO issue. And these letters went back and forth, and it was a real initiative. And John Podesta, after his term in, uh, the, uh, in the White House as chief of staff, came forward at the Washington Press Club and said exactly the same thing. It's time to end the secrecy on this. So uh, what Clinton is doing here, he's opening the door for the media to say, listen, there's a big hint here. Pick up on this, folks. Yeah, and do it on a comedy show so yeah. it seems rather... Uh, benign. Just slide it right in. So we're, we're moving ahead <laughs> slowly. Well, listen, here's someone else who has worked tirelessly to, uh, to end the UFO ET truth embargo. Gary Heseltine served as a British police detective with over 22 years service. Uh, and then back in 2002, he founded the Police Reporting UFO Sightings Database, which caters 
um, basically for serving and retired British police UFO sighting reports. In 10 years of research, he's now, well, 12 years of research, he's now amassed, uh, well, nearly 500 cases involving over 900 British police officers. He was the former editor of the online publication UFOMonthly.com as well as the former co-editor of UFO Data Magazine in Washington, D.C. in 2010. He was awarded the Disclosure Award by Stephen Bassett's Paradigm Research Group. And for the last year, he's been working closely with uh, Colonel Charles Hult, uh, putting a, a film together on the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Gary Hesseltine, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm fine, uh... I'm glad to see that you're on the mend. Thank you, and I appreciate you getting up uh, very early, uh, or maybe you didn't. You never went to bed, but it must be, what, 4 or 5 in the morning in the UK? Yeah, it's 5 a.m. in the morning, and uh, no problem at all. It's always a pleasure. All right, and uh, say hello to my uh, my colleague, uh, who, 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 I, who I know you are aware of, and that's uh, Victor Vigiani. Good morning, Victor. Hello, Gary. I had a pleasure of uh, watching and listening to you at the hearings back in May. I was uh, just taking taking in everything that you said. Uh, a tremendous, a tremendous uh, affront that you gave us to uh, to consider. Excellent testimony. Gary, Thank you very much. Uh, Gary, I met you back in 2010 in Washington at that very uh, ex-conference, and uh, we sat down for a, a television interview. I don't know if you recall, but um, you revealed during that interview to me and, and I'm sure I know it's a story that you've told many times but I think my listeners would be would be fascinated to hear I mean how before you even became a police officer your experience with a craft uh, which to me is is was one of the and the way that you told it to me at the time one of the most remarkable stories uh, from an experiencer that I've ever I've ever heard could you give us sort of the reader's digest version yeah, no problem. Um, my uh, history of this subject really begins with a childhood sighting at the age of 15 in my hometown of Scunthorpe in uh, Lincolnshire in England. And uh, at the time it was uh, a balmy summer's uh, night, all the stars were out, which you don't get many of these kind of nights in England due to the you know, poor weather that we generally have, but it was all the stars were out, not a cloud in the sky, lovely, lovely evening. And I was walking my then girlfriend home called Dawn. Uh, and uh, we were walking along a long, narrow footpath that uh, essentially dissected my, as you would call, high school uh, fields on the left. And on the right side were some garden allotments, um, a large garden area. And so essentially, we were in the middle of the darkest part of the pathway. And in the distance, we could see housing that was at the end of the uh, path, uh, which was all lights, uh, you know, all the lights were on. It was about 8, 9 p.m. in the evening. And, uh, and as we got to about halfway down along this footpath, we suddenly noticed that there was a bright white light at about a 60-degree angle, moving from our right to left um, up into the sky ahead of us. Now, we watched it. There was no distinct shape. It was just a bright white light, but it was much bigger than the uh, background of stars. And the puzzling thing was that there was absolutely no noise. It was very slowly moving, kind of gliding. And if you can imagine that if you're on a forward uh, direction and the 
path is moving ahead of you, then this object passed us from right to left across our path. But as soon as the object passed by us, all the housing lights, the electricity uh, in the distance was cut off, uh, akin to a power cut, uh, plunging the distant view into darkness. Now, immediately and rightly or wrongly, my girlfriend uh, associated the light with causing the power cut and she became visibly frightened. We watched pretty much in awe as this object was moving further away to our left, but very slowly, when there was a second power cut behind the area of the object's flight path. So the area is absolutely plunged into darkness. Now, the object was generally heading very slowly in the direction of where I lived. At the time, I was walking my then girlfriend home. Now, I had my bicycle with me, so I said, get on the bike onto the crossbar and I will, will uh, ride you back to your house. So two of us on the bike, a Lincolnshire term called Croggering, two of us on the bike, rode down the, the, the end of the alleyway and uh, sure enough her house was around a couple of corners in total darkness because of the power cup. I dropped her off, literally just dropped her off and then raced like mad along the same alleyway trying to take a shortcut uh, to try to catch up with the light. Now, because the angle that it was moving, I was able to do this, and eventually I get onto a long road called Grange Lane South, and I have this distinct memory of, of going from total darkness into where the electricity was on, effectively from one house to the next on this corner, and uh, going from darkness uh, from darkness into where the light was still on. And as I did so, I glanced over my right shoulder to see that I'd got ahead of the light by taking this shortcut and by racing like man. And the object was just behind me. So I'd gone into the electricity area. I ran around two corners, dropped my bike outside my house, rushed in to the living room to see my parents who were having a cup of tea, supper time. And uh, I said, come outside. I think there's going to be a power cut caused by this strange light. And they just looked at me bemused, as you would, didn't get up. So I raced through the hall, through the kitchen, through the back door, into the backyard, turned around to look back at my semi-detached house, just in time to, to see the object move over my rooftop. I put my arm up in the garden, straight above my head, like you're saying, yes, sir, uh, yeah, I'll answer that question. And I put my hand up, and no sooner did that object pass by my arm, pass the 90 degrees as it were, and the whole area behind the flight path was plunged into darkness. Including your house. I predict, yep, including my house, the entire area was plunged into darkness. Now, how could I predict a power cut? And it was from that time that I realized that that object must have, from second second by moving to a second geographical position, must have interacted with the power grid. Because All right. how can I predict outcomes? Absolutely. Listen, Gary, we'll uh, take a time out. We'll come back and we'll talk about the police reporting UFO sightings database, which you created back in 2002, and uh, get into a discussion about how police handle UFO sightings on either side of the pond. Victor Vigiani from Zeland News Network in studio. Gary Hesseltine on the phone from the UK here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. 
Uh, welcome back. Gary Hesseltine, a retired British police officer on the line from merry old England, and uh, we're discussing uh, the, the police and UFO sightings. Victor Vigiani in studio from Zealand News Network. Just a reminder, coming up at 12.45, the return of state psyops with our media scientist, Nelson Thal, who is equipped with some amazing stories that you will not hear in the mainstream media. Uh, but let's get back to uh, the police and UFO sightings. Victor, take it away. As a, as a police officer, Gary, um, in the context of uh, the very detailed story you just told, um, you know, you went through that uh, uh, incident. How old were you at the time? Just approximately? 15. Okay, so you're 15, 15 years, old. years old. Okay, you're 15 years old. You went through some schooling after, and you became a police officer eventually, uh, obviously. Um, the, my, the question that I have in mind right now is in my career as an elementary school principal, I dealt with the police a lot. Uh, in terms of you know parents and students and just engage the, uh, the 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 police department in many many different ways and they've always impressed me as very cut and dry, just give me the facts kind of individuals. They don't really have too much room for obfuscation and and fudging the facts. Uh, when you became a police officer, knowing what you knew then, and then maybe integrating some of the knowledge that you may have had in the interim, uh, how, how how could you stay in the police service for so long without literally exploding and wanting to do more of this? Uh, that's, that's a good question, and it's one uh, that I'm frequently asked. And, and, and the, the real answer is that um, for the first six years of my service, I joined the police in 1989. I sort of kept uh, my UFO background uh, to myself, mm-hmm. um, but it was uh, in around 1995 when I came across a magazine called UFO Magazine, which was a British publication at that time, um, which kind of reignited my interest in the subject. And over the next couple of years, uh, I kind of uh, caught up on the latest books, etc. After really being away from it for a long time, but it reignited my interest. And as the more I read, the more I began to feel a sense of frustration that all the uh, years that had passed by, uh, nothing had really changed. I was still reading about pilots chasing UFOs, and yet it was still being ridiculed in the media. So a sense of frustration grew, and that culminated, quite in a long story short, uh, to uh, the creation of the database in late November of uh, 2001. Uh, and uh, the, the the way that it moved forward to the database actually launching publicly was uh, I approached the editor of that magazine, a guy called Graham Birdsell, sadly died of a brain hemorrhage mm-hmm. in 2003. But I approached him and uh, said, look, I've got this idea for a police database. Would you allow me to write an article in your magazine just to let it get it off the ground? And he was uh, very agreeable to that idea simply because he looked at the subject in a non-nonsense scientific way. And he, was, and he obviously thought that police officers added a degree of credibility to the subject. So he was all keen for that. So in January 2002, I launched the database. And initially, I got uh, all ribbing off my colleagues. You know, my inspector's an alien, take me to your leader, and all those kind of jokes. And that's uh, what I absolutely thought would happen. Uh, But you're right that police officers generally do not put their head above the parapet uh, they are no nonsense unless something's happened. So when you do get police officers going on the record, then believe me, uh, they're not lying uh, because they would get ripped 
ripped to pieces by their colleagues at the slightest bit of uh, making such a story up, they'd be found out very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, once the database launched, there was a constant stream of uh, officers, generally retired officers, approaching me. They'd got the pension. They didn't feel uh, in uh, under any threat of it, as it were. And they began to reveal these stories to me, which were absolutely incredible. Uh, and I realised that it was just the tip of an uh, an iceberg. And and moving it on, that as the uh, number of cases increased over many years, the more I began to get pressure from within the police, uh, really uh, my movements, in a sense, and what I was saying on radio shows like this was being monitored, uh, and uh, that culminated in uh, 2010 when I actually got a 12-month written warning from the police just because I wrote a private letter to several chief constables when the uh, Ministry of Defence suddenly decided to close its UFO reporting facility in uh, December 2009. Uh, And that was quite a worrying time because your pension that you worked for all these years uh, was on the line uh, and ended up getting a 12-month written warning. It was was quite a a worrying time. And that was one of the reasons why I decided to retire. And in retirement, I chose to launch an online magazine called UFO Truth Magazine. And that's what I do now. I'm the editor of an online magazine that goes worldwide. How did you interpret that warning? Uh, To me, uh, that would have meant that I'm onto something here and would have motivated me even more to continue along that that, that path. Did did you interpret it that way, that if the police are going to warn me in this way, there must be something? here did you did you look at it that way well it was always it was always obvious to me that uh, that there was a real reality behind these stories i mean the the one of the key things that comes out from 12 years of research is uh, that seven over 70 percent of the cases that are on the database that's 70 percent of over 450 cases uh, so what 350 plus are multiple police witness cases. Now, that's an impressive statistic on its own. I'm not a big lover of statistics, but that is an impressive statistic to me because this, again, strikes at the heart of the sceptics who say it's just the blurry-eyed policeman tired in the middle of the night who's got confused, misidentification, etc. When you're getting officers, um, two, four, six, eight, ten, in one case, 24 police officers over six counties of Britain following objects in the sky, then you're pretty sure that you're looking at something very, very strange. Gary, I'd, I'd be curious to know how the report of these sightings differs from sort of the official paperwork that the police file when they see something and how they are reporting it on your database. Well, what you've got to realise is that the, the database is caters for two, two specific areas areas, on-duty sightings and off-duty sightings. And the reason why I do the two is if you're on duty, then you're in an official capacity and you're using your all your senses to report factually, as it were, write it down in your pocketbook as if you were going to present evidence in court. But I also realise that if a policeman is off-duty, in a sense, a policeman who's taken an oath to the Queen, as in, in the UK, you're never off duty. So many of police officers get in, involved. They're out, they're out with a wife and kids, and they see a burglar, and they end up, you know, getting involved. So you're never essentially off duty. So in the off duty capacity, I realise that it's the same officer using his same senses, and would record things in exactly the same way. So they're on the database. 
and probably 85% of the cases are on-duty incidents, but there's a significant 15% who are off-duty, often corroborated by wife and, and uh, members of the family that they're out with and they see objects. But for me, it's the same officer using the same skills, so it's, it's a valid thing. Now, in terms of uh, the police sightings, what you've got to understand is most of uh, most police forces in England and Wales, there are 43 separate county police forces in England and Wales, had pretty much the same reporting procedure. And that was a, essentially filling a simple pro forma if somebody reports a sighting and send off facts off, telex it off historically off to the Ministry of Defence to a, a specific UFO uh, desk. And that operated for over 50 years. And uh, it, what you've got to re realise is that this wasn't a really well-organised thing. When police officers historically uh, got a phone call, years ago, most there weren't the big control rooms now that cater for you know, large regions of, uh, of the counties and areas of England. There were just, most police stations had their own uh, radio transmitter that would operate over a, a relatively small area. So officers would often get a phone call. Now, if the officer was open to the idea of UFOs and took it seriously, uh, then he'd listen to the caller and write some notes down and, and, and send off the telex to uh, the Ministry of Defence. But it was pure luck. If an officer picked up the phone and he thought it was a load of rubbish, then he'd probably laugh at the person on the other end of the line who may well have been very well upset because they'd witnessed something profoundly strange and just put the phone down on them. That's how abstract it was. So this was not a well-organised thing in the UK at all. Right. Uh, but... Could you give that, us an? That, could you that give said, an, we do have a, a, yeah. a wealth of good cases. Yeah, could you give us an example of of a of a really outstanding case that that might have been um, put forward that that you are aware of in the database that that really kind of uh, shines for you? Oh, there's, there's been many. Uh, it's tough I mean, to do there one. Yeah, case that I mentioned at the citizens' hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, in May in Washington last year, and it's uh, it was it was uh, an absolutely brilliant one. Basically, two uniformed police officers were in a marked police vehicle, and it's the early hours, and uh, they saw what could only be described as a huge black triangular craft. So this is not a light in the sky. This is structure. It's a huge black triangular object making no noise, just above treetop level. But here's the staggering thing. It was the size of three football fields hovering in silence above treetop level. And I said, how do you know it was the size of three football fields? He says, because when we saw it, it was above the size, it was above three football fields. So we've got a good idea on its size. Now, both officers corroborated the sighting. Now, why is an officer going to make that up and tell me about it many years later? Yeah. Why is he going to put his uh, head above the parapet with such a, an incredible story? Uh, they watched the object for uh, several minutes, I think six or seven minutes, and then it suddenly shoots off onto the horizon in the blink of an eye, instant acceleration, no noise, and stops on the horizon and then disappears. Now, 
What motivation is there for an officer to do that? Are they trying to become rich and famous? Because you don't get rich and famous in the UFO field. Do you make loads of money in the UFO field? No, you don't. Uh, do you risk credibility? Yes, you do. What do police officers not want to lose is credibility mm. in the eyes of their colleagues. So when an officer does that kind of sighting, then we should be sitting up and listening. And and and, and, and can you imagine the size of three football fields? Now, on its own, if you were a sceptic, on its own, you'd go, well, I still can't believe it. it, 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 it there's got to be some rational explanation however there's many sightings on the database of objects uh, another case from 1979 the officer approached me and basically there's three officers parked up at about three in the morning in a rural area of the countryside there's no ambient street lighting anywhere around it is absolutely countryside total dance then as they're talking to each other in the distance they see a bright flash low on the horizon and then they, they look, but it's so brief that they don't really pay any attention. It only lasts a second or so. Anyway, five minutes later, suddenly, and the object doesn't arrive in the sense of a conventional object. It doesn't come left. It doesn't come right. It doesn't come down from the sky. It's like a light bulb turning on, and suddenly an object that they described as the width of the football field shining a beam down across the terrain at about an altitude of 500 feet, the width of the football field, scanning as if scanning the terrain, total silence, and here's the crazy thing, that the smaller objects flying around the outside of the bigger object, akin to a kind of a mothership scenario. They watch in absolute amazement for about five minutes when suddenly it doesn't go left, doesn't go right, it just blinks off. Disappears. And what an incredible story. Well, it's, uh, you know, these stories, I guess you can you can tell them uh, all, all night long. It, it's the, the other thing I, I want to talk about is the, the, the more, um, I guess we can get to the politics of all of this, but you're also heavily involved uh, with the Rendlesham Forest incident. Uh, um, and I know you're, you're preparing a, a documentary movie on this. Uh, the, one of the things that fascinates me about um, the, the whole Rendlesham thing is the degree to which the officers, the security officers, any, and anyone else who saw it uh, at the time, were threatened by their superiors to be quiet. Um, I, I know that um, the threats to police officers don't go down well, but what kind of pressure do you think was exerted on these people just to keep quiet and not... If I, not, if I could, let me just, uh, for yeah. those not familiar with Rendlesham, sure. if, if Gary, you could just give us a, a quick thumbnail sketch of what happened on that joint U.S.-British uh, base back uh, Christmas 1980. Uh, we're coming up on a break here, so let's just give us the the, the, the bare bone details, and then when we come back, Victor, we'll pick up on on, on that. Sure thing. Okay, the, the Americans would probably know it as the Bentwaters incident in the UK. It's known as Rendlesham Forest, and essentially between the December twenty sixth, twenty sixth, and the twenty eighth, over a three day period, there were three successive nights of UFO activity at or near the base. At a base that now we suspect had nuclear missiles. Uh, listen, we'll take a time out, come back on the other side of retired British police officer, ufologist Gary Hesseltine on the line from England and in studio Victor Vigiani from Zealand News Network as we discuss the police and UFO sightings. Stay with us. Uh, welcome back, and uh, a few moments remain with Gary Hesseltine as we discuss uh, police sightings of UFOs. Uh, and just ahead of 
our media scientist friend Nelson Thal and his latest installment of State PSYOPs. We'll talk about the latest on um, Malaysian Airline Flight 370 and also dial back to uh, just over a year ago on the uh, the Boston Marathon uh, bombing. Some uh, in- interesting information on that. The possibility of a volcanic eruption at Yellowstone. Uh, scientists finding a, uh, a, a treatment to kill every kind of cancer and much more. All coming up, State PSYOPs, Nelson Thal. All right, Victor Vigiani, you are going to ask Gary Hesseltine about the infamous Rendlesham Forest UFO incident. Right, with, with the number of uh, UFO sightings that were around that uh, over the past, uh, over the two days that were involved. Um, I couldn't help it, but uh, listen to your testimony, uh, Gary, at the citizen hearings, uh, both when I was there and this afternoon. And basically, uh, you outlined two facts. First of all, that you were on uh, two similar um, uh, military bases that were, they were nuclear bases, uh, as you outlined. And uh, in, the, in your... Um, in your testimony at the citizen hearings, you said, uh, I'm going to quote right from you what you say. You said, let's cut the crap. This was a nuclear um, uh, incident or issue. And uh, <laughs> you, you said that. I'm not going to, you know. Um, and, and it was a very powerful statement because, um, you know, when you say let's cut the crap, I, I think what you're, what you're saying is let's really deal with this issue um, as to what it means authentically. And one of the issues surrounding it, not just the UFO issue, is the amount of pressure placed on military security officers to keep their mouths shut. Um, first of all, comment on, on the, the nuclear aspects of, of all of this. And then if you could give us some insight as to the kind of pressure that are placed on military officers to keep their mouths shut. Right. Uh, first and foremost, the uh, the I served in the Royal Air Force Police uh, for six years between 1983 and 1989, so just before I joined the Men Police. And I worked on two nuclear bases, uh, protecting nuclear weapons um, in, in, in silos or uh, bunkers uh, that uh, were identical to the, uh, the site at Bentwaters, RAF Bentwaters, which is where the... Uh, American case took place in December 1980. So I had, I had kind of like a unique background, uh, and you can tell it's nuclear. The, the, I've got a photograph of the base at Arif Lab in what was then West Germany, where I worked, and it's an identical layout to the hot row at uh, Arif Bentwaters, which is a nuclear hot row. And uh, what you've got to understand is that official people, like Colonel Charles Holt, are not going to officially say uh, there was nuclear weapons for the simple reason is that it, it, they, they will tend to say oh, I can neither confirm or deny mm-hmm. but it was nuclear weapons and you can tell that on the number of officers that were involved of Bent Waters there were 38 officers guarding in and around that facility on normal bomb dump and an out normal uh, facility conventional weapons it would be two or three but there were 38 on on mobile patrols walking around inside the towers etc etc so you can tell very straightforward it's nuclear weapons it's an identical layout to the RAF Larbrook uh, weapon storage area uh, so this is nuclear weapons uh, and what's more important is I got I went up to the tower in 2007 with Colonel Holt and he did a private video for me which you can go to uh, uh, the UFO truth uh, the, um, Online YouTube page, and you'll see that clip where he filled where we're at the top 
top of the tower and I asked mm-hmm. him about nuclear weapons and he said that after he'd had his sightings while he's out with his men, he sees the UFO shining a beam down in the direction of the Bentwaters uh, weapon storage area. He can't say for certain because he's away from it looking back through terrain, but he changes his radio frequency and on that video clip he says I changed the radio frequency and tuned into the tower, the weapon storage area tower and sure enough I could hear that the, the guy in the tower saying there are beams being shone down into the nuclear bunkers. Now that is an incredibly important admission for him to make to me, uh, confirming that there were beams being sent down into the nuclear storage bunkers. This is an incredible event. How often do you get beams being shone down into a nuclear bunker by a UFO that is directly overhead? Now, you imagine that if you're uh, one of those uh, soldiers uh, in there guarding the weapons, you must have been absolutely terrified. What's going on? Do you shoot at the thing? What do you do in that scenario? Uh, so so that's the kind of scenario. But don't forget that over three successive nights between December the 26th and December the 28th, there was repeated UFO activity. Uh, and even if you strip away all the personalities, you are still left with an incredible event. And Holt wrote the Holt Memorandum, which was just three pages. Mm-hmm. It was never meant to be a full report. He brought it to the MOD, and it was just a taster for what he thought would be a full investigation. And the first one said, uh, on the first paragraph, said that it was a landing on the first night uh, and uh, of a triangular object. The second paragraph said that there was trace evidence left by that uh, craft coming down. And then the third night, he says, oh, I saw multiple UFOs myself. What, now, what, how often do you get a, a high-ranking officer course, do? Yeah, yeah. Now, in terms, in terms of the... Uh, the the efforts for secrecy. Well, this is a kind of case that could blow the lid on UFOs once and for all. So straight away, a cover-up came in there, and and several of the men uh, have, have independently said that they were interrogated, sometimes given drugs, sodium pentothal, yeah. sodium amethol, uh, to and and they basically were grilled to say, no, you saw a lighthouse, you saw this, it's it's not UFOs, don't say anything. So so in certain cases that are excellent cases uh, across many areas of the world, uh, power is exerted. And I would have to say that it's usually America putting the most pressure on. Uh, uh, they usually have their fingers into most decent UFO cases. And the thing is, you don't say anything. Now, if you're in the military and you've taken an oath to defend your country, it's a big thing. So people, if they're told to stay quiet under the threat of things happening to their family, they will stay quiet. Of course. Gary, listen, fascinating. Uh, We'll have to have you on again uh, and discuss further. We've merely scratched the surface. Uh, Again, the website for the the police database. Can you give us that? What I I want to say is the website for the magazine that I'm doing now, because that features most of the top researchers in the world, includes police sightings, is uh, www.ufotruthmagazine.co.uk and the police database is www.proofosplicedatabase.co.uk. I'll send you any links and banners, etc., so you can put them out for your readers. All right, they're on the website. If they click on Gary Heseltine, it'll take you to the uh, Proofos website. Thank you for this, my friend. Thank you very much. Anytime. All right. When we come back, State PsyOps with Nelson Thal. Don't go away. 
All right, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. And, uh, of course, we come back in with the, uh, that great um, uh, scene from Network. Now, here is our own mad prophet of the airwaves, our very own Howard Beale, Nelson Thal, media scientist, with another installment of State PsyOps. How are you, Nelson? Very good. Good to have you back. I hope your lungs are getting better. <laughs> great. It's great to be back. Listen, uh, it's got, we have kind of a backlog because uh, with my illness and so forth, it's been a while since we've had you on. And I wanted to get to right to the – you have a number of uh, stories on the, uh, the, 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 uh, the Twitter page, which is State PsyOps. Uh, and they have to do, of course, with the missing Malaysian Flight 370. One of them, um, a whistleblower um, – saying that, again, confirming what some of others have said, that the, the Malaysian airliner's passengers were taken hostage. Where is this story coming from, Nelson? Rich, you know, it's after midnight, as we always say, and the owners of the system are asleep, so we can come out and play here. But uh, we live in an age of gigantic pictorial illusionism and journalistic exaggeration of concealment. And uh, it's just been bombarding the society with it, as I know you and I have discussed over the years. Okay, so again, this whistleblower, uh, a diplomatic pouch courier, reporting that Malaysian passengers were taken hostage. What can you tell us about that? I I think the background on this, Rich, we should talk about is – you know, it was you and I who answered the New York Times ad from Admiral Moore and Benton Parton. And I interviewed uh, the admiral of the Joint Chiefs of Staff on the ad that he took in the New York Times, which CBS News it, it totally ignored. And I think this was regarding TWA eight hundred. TWA eight hundred. So right. So the top people in the Pentagon told us that TWA eight hundred, and they put a big ad in the New York Times. Everybody could read it in eighty nine. They said that the government's official story was a lie, that it wasn't a spark in the fuel tank, it was a missile. And he said the National Transportation Safety Board altered the forensics and covered it up. So it were heavy charges, and this is the top guy in the Pentagon said that this is going on. Now, so we've been studying KAL 007 aircraft crash, the Dorothy Hunt uh, crash in Chicago, and you start to see a pattern in all of them as to how they run these operations. And Sherman Skolnick, the great American judge buster who Time magazine wrote about, wrote the history of airplane, American airplane sabotage. And this Malaysian flight doesn't have any of the fingerprints of being a sabotage like shot down with a missile. Uh, this uh, uh, sources say that there's no doubt that this is a hostage taking. Well, further to that, another story that you have up on the state psyops page, and people can click on if they go to uh, tonight's show uh, and and scroll down to state psyops. They can click there on the in red bold letters. It says to read full articles. Click here. That'll take you to the Twitter page, which is state psyops. The other right. story that you have there has to do with further to this hostage type scenario has yeah. to do with a report that Queen Elizabeth II has received a ransom request for those same Malaysian passengers. Now, where is this story coming from? Well, basically, it's coming from the board of directors of the Malaysian Airlines because the, you must remember that these planes were all serviced always by BOAC, 
that in the 50s, the British Overseas Airways Corporation, which eventually became, was the grandfather to British Airways. They did all the maintenance on the plane, so they had access to this plane. And so um, you start to follow the money, and, and that's what we do, Rich. We follow the money, as Ned Beatty said, and this is where the, uh, the people behind the scenes the the Leo Wantas, the ambassadors. There's retired ambassadors that feed us information. There's retired diplomatic pouch couriers who become important sources in today's mediated world. And uh, there's a lot of people who are retired who want to uh, talk about the, what's really going on behind the scenes, as you know. So what else do we know? Do we know anything uh, other than that except that uh, a whistleblower, diplomatic pouch courier is saying that it, that he has it on good authority, that the, the passengers were taken hostage and that the queen herself has received a ransom note? Is, do we know anything more? Yeah, there's a lot that's being reported and people sh- – and I think that because we're on only for 15 minutes and covering vast amounts of different uh, operations and black operations going on, that ultimately the beauty of the Twitter site is people can hear sort of a summation from us and then they can go and read about it on the on the net. Okay. Let's uh, but, jump, jump but, ahead. But we, okay, go but ahead. We can, we can get on to a bit later. We can get more into what is going on and what's being reported is going on and, uh, as to why these people were taken hostage and, uh, and who's trying to benefit from it. Key bono is always the question that Sherman Skolnick pointed people to look at. Follow the money and key bono. Who benefits here? Nelson Thal, State PSYOPs here on The Conspiracy Show. Now, let's dial back to um, uh, the Boston Marathon. Uh, last year, and of course we had the uh, the horrible uh, bombing, uh, and you're reporting on uh, state psyops that the FBI apparently asked Samarev, uh, the um, the accused in this case, to work as an informant before the Boston bombing, and this is what his defense is claiming. That's right, and and you know, Rich, also remember that. Um, Let's not forget that what our national leaders say publicly to other national leaders, um, retired uh, couriers have pointed out, that that's not necessarily what they say public is not necessarily what they say to each other privately by handwritten notes given to couriers to deliver to the leaders of uh, of another nation around the world. Okay, so this That's is important some... for us to recognize what's going on behind the scenes. When you watch the, I mean, this week CNN has flooded the conscious minds of Americans with a psychological maneuvering of people's minds and senses. It's a heavy psyops that they've been involved in, and you have. Then, of course, the Malaysian airliner begs the question: What? A role, and did these people play in this operation? That now they have to absolutely bombard the conscious level mind and do a heavy military psyops on the way people think and feel at this time. Uh, people like other countries that don't need to saturate their people's minds with what this story is about, they are obviously not guilty. Okay, but the, the Tsimeyev case in the Boston Marathon bombing, his defense yes. lawyer is claiming that, that, that the FBI asked him to be an informant. So what is the inference here that Tsimeyev uh, basically got caught up in a sting operation or, or he, 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 he got he, – basically he's a patsy. Is that, the, is that what they're saying? Double agent, triple agent, just like Oswald was an FBI informant and he had a CIA – he's a CIA agent as well. 
All right, uh, let's move along to uh, to Yellowstone. Of course, there's been a, a flood of stories about uh, these, you know, wild animals that apparently are fleeing Yellowstone Park, and has led some people to conclude that uh, you know the supervolcano beneath Yellowstone is ready to blow because animals have some sort of instinctual, you know, uh, they just know that something's something's wrong. So you've got these bisons that are leaving on mass and other animals. What are you hearing about a possible eruption at Yellowstone? Well, um, back in the 2002-2003, I was in touch with Pam Shuford on site, and uh, she was at the edges of where they would allow you to go back then, and she said that the steam was coming out of the earth. So there is a caldera there that is starting to become active more and more, and it's a target of terrorists, of course, because one suitcase bomb thrown into into that tornado, the lip of that volcano anywhere in the Yellowstone could uh, wipe out America's ability to grow wheat and flour. Uh, because and of the, the amount of volcanic ash in the atmosphere. It would be, totally. basically cause almost like a nuclear winter. A nuclear winter, wipe out agriculture across western and parts of – most of all western the the agricultural part of America would be wiped out. I hadn't even thought of that, uh, that, that, that a supervolcano could be used uh, you know, in some sort of act of terrorism that you could basically uh, you know, uh, bring about the eruption by the, by the use of a, of a suitcase bomb, but it makes sense. Yeah, be, Yellowstone Park would become our Jurassic Park if that was going to happen. That's uh, what would happen. All right, Nelson Thal here Jurassic- with uh, State PsyOps here on The Conspiracy Show. And again, uh, go to the homepage, uh, richardserrett.com, scroll down to State PsyOps, and just click in red bold letters, it says, uh, to read the full articles. Click here. That'll take you to the Twitter page, State PsyOps. Now, this is a fascinating story. Of course, we we, we love to cover alternative health and, uh, uh, you know, uh, the question of whether there's a, a, a cure for this or that being suppressed. You've got a story here about scientists finding a treatment to kill every kind of cancer tumor. What can you tell us about that? Well, of course, um, we've always said and we've always had it passed down to us that uh, they created, the Rockefellers created the cancer industry as a um, money-making operation and that nothing was developed that they didn't have a antidote for the board of directors. And it seems now under electric conditions, uh, everything's being flushed out in the open, like McLuhan said, and these start, things are starting to come out, the fact that there are antidotes to these. These are all manufactured diseases. And, and where are these scientists that are, that are, that are claiming to, to have found this treatment? Yeah, good question. Uh, the, uh, I'm sure the article, uh, our sources make, uh, you're not going to find out. They're, they're not going to make themselves evident. You know, Richard, so many people who've developed the water generators, guys working in their backyard, there's a list, death list there of people that when they go to the patent office and license a particular machine that's, a, that's a, a threatening to the oil cartel guys who control the patent office, they go out and they'll kill the guy. All right, very quickly. So, the, you know, this goes on. Just, just enough time for one more. And I, uh, there's a, um, an interesting uh, video circulating on YouTube now. It's entitled, Where Are the 9-11 Victims? Tell us what this, this uh, researcher on YouTube discovered. 
Well, it's beyond belief, but on a certain level, it's not. And it's basically an understanding that using computers and lists and by controlling the source of information of the intelligence agencies through Interpol, you can you can literally um, uh, alter forensics. So the number of people really who are on board a plane forensically the list and what really shows is altered and alterable because uh, computers have back doors and TWA's computers have back doors right. and my understanding is that this researcher to be manufactured fabricated right. passenger lists is that not correct as you read it Richard well my understanding is that this researcher and again it's on YouTube uh, went and checked the I guess yeah. it's called the social security death list which is a, yeah. a list of all the people who died on a certain day and he checked the list in New York, New Jersey, for September 11th, 2001, September 12th, September 13th, kept checking, checking, didn't find any of the passengers' names on the Social Security death list, which apparently is very, very accurate. I mean, he said, you know, he would check his own relatives and their date of death and so forth, and there they were on the list, and yet none of the passengers are on that list. Fascinating. Well, and, and of course, we've talked in the past for many years about how 9-11 was a very, very heavy black op operation. Okay. Gary Best, okay, gotta go, Donald Nelson. Rumsfeld, right. Cheney, etc. All right. Until uh, next time. Uh, my thanks to uh, Nelson Thal, Victor Vigiani, Gary Heseltine, Tim Spreen. Uh, back next week uh, with a brand new program, and it's great to be back, and, and uh, thank you all for your ears. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.